I'd like for you to go with me to Joshua, the first chapter. A very, very, very uh, important story in the kingdom, a very familiar passage of scripture, especially at Church of the Harvest. And because we do podcast our messages uh, every Sunday around one, Austin is so good about doing that. Uh, if I don't give them a title, they make up their own title. And some of their titles scare me. So I, 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 when I stand before the body, I feel like, okay, this is the direction I'm going this morning. But if I don't mention the title, it's amazing where I wind up or where they think I wind up. I don't know if they do a lottery up in the sound booth or not. I don't know if they just do selective, whoever wants to pick the sermon title for today. But uh, if you're one of those sermon title kind of people, this morning I will be teaching on just a few minutes. It might be time to grow up. It might be time to grow up. And as we look at the life of Moses, we know that God called Moses to do some incredible, some phenomenal things. We know that Moses spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court thinking he was somebody, committed murder, went into hiding for 40 years realizing that he was a nobody, and then spent the last 40 years of his life realizing that God could take a nobody and make a somebody out of them. And we know that Moses was responsible for leading somewhere between three to five million people out of Egypt into the promised land. We're not exactly sure how many there were. We know there was a standing army of 275,000 men. So if the men were like Jacob and had 12 children, there probably could have been three to five million people that Moses was the pastor of that flock and he was responsible for feeding them and clothing them. God touched them supernaturally. The word said that 40 years that they walked in the wilderness, they never wore out their shoes. They never wore out their clothing, which to me is an interesting concept because you put a pair of sandals on a five-year-old boy. By the time his four to his feet has grown, but apparently the clothes grew with the body, the shoes grew with the feet. You don't hear a lot about that kind of a miracle, but to me that's a pretty cool miracle. It's best if you start off with Versace or Adidas or Nike. Hello? Just have Nikes your whole life and have to buy another pair. Would that be fine? Just that your, 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 your clothes would grow with your body. We know that his response for feeding them. We know that manna fell from heaven. We know that the temperatures in the desert got cold, so every night they had a pillar of fire to warm them. In the, in the day while they were traveling through the desert, the temperature got hot. They had, they had a, a cloud following them in the desert during the day. So it was a pretty cool environment. God's trying to teach them to walk as he would have them walk and do what he would have them do. A promise to Abraham years earlier that God would give God would give Abraham a generation that you couldn't count the sands of the sea or the stars of the sky. And we see that Israel has truly become that kind of nation today that God has blessed the nation. But Joshua and Caleb have kind of been Moses' right-hand men. They, they, they accompanied him. They were armor bearers to him. Many times when Moses was on the mountain seeing the glory, getting the Ten Commandments face-to-face with God, Joshua was camped out somewhere between the mountain and the people. But Joshua chose that. That was his heart's desire to follow the man of God because he wanted to learn about God, learn the things of God. We've shared with you several times, you can't learn something from somebody that don't know nothing. Hello? You want to be better? I told you years and years ago, to become a better racquetball player, I wouldn't play Pastor Rhonda. To be a better Frisbee thrower, I wouldn't play Pastor Rhonda. To become a better golfer, I don't know if she'd ever had a golf, a golf club in her hand. Sometimes it's fun to take people out that you know you can whop on them and beat them up. 
that's such a good, you're, you know, you're done. I told you about the story of me playing um, golf with Dwight Allen. Dwight Allen is a phenomenal man of God. Lost his leg in Vietnam. The helicopter tire blew up and blew his leg off. And pastors, a church of about 3,000 in the Miami area. When I was with him, I asked him, I said, Pastor, have you ever, did you resent the fact that you lost your leg early in life in Vietnam? He said, absolutely not. He said, had that not been a wake-up call, he said, I would have died and gone to hell. I was on that path. That was the path that I was on. But when I lost my leg, it turned my life around. I saw what God had for me. So I took advantage of him one day, and we went out to the golf course, and uh, I was just wearing him out. Man, I was knocking the, the, the ball down the middle of the fairway, and, and he would kind of swing at it and do uh, rather poorly. And then on one particular hole, there were people waiting on us, and we were, and we were, we were teeing off. And he went to tee off, and his leg fell off. Right there on the, on, the, on, the, on the tee box, his leg fell off on the ground. And uh, much to my chagrin, there were people watching me. Well, obviously, I couldn't hit a good shot because it made me look bad. So what I did was I limped all the way up to the ball, whacked it about 30 yards past the girl's tee because you had to hit at least past the girl's tee and limped all the way back to the golf court. And they were telling, oh, it's so wonderful. You guys are out with your handicaps and enjoying. If they only knew what handicaps I really had. But... There are, there are times in your life when, when, when you decide to become better than you are or, or following that nudge or that unction in your life to be what God's called you to be, you try to surround yourself with people that have been there, done that, and can at least tell you how not to do it. Can anybody relate? I shared with somebody yesterday, a, a young, young pastor came to the church, and, and uh, my realtor was here, and we were... Uh, joining hands for prayer and my realtor left. It's probably a good thing that he left because this, this pastor just started praying in tongues and his wife started walking around the sanctuary and I'm in the lobby and I had to use the bathroom so bad it wasn't even funny. And I was just saying, Lord, let him get done praying so I can go to the bathroom. So I really wasn't all that spiritual or all that, you know, caught up in the moment as they were caught up, but they were really caught up and they were really praying. And so he asked me for a little counsel. And I said, well, I said, I really can't tell you how to do it but I can tell you what not to do. And so I spent about 10 minutes sharing with him some of the lessons I learned. Can anybody relate? I mean, how this is, don't, don't do this again. There's a reason why you don't touch white paint. There's a reason why you don't walk on the grass. There's a reason why you don't walk on the edge of a cliff. There's a reason for all of that. And some of us had to learn the hard way several times. Some of the lessons I, you would think that I would learn a new lesson, I would learn that lesson and go learn something else. But lo and behold, you go right back and learn the old lesson all over again. I guess that's what they call experience. But as you look at the life of Joshua, Joshua followed Moses everywhere he went. And when God called Moses and God took Moses to heaven, when Moses died, God told Joshua he wanted him to follow in Moses' footsteps. Matter of fact, God in the first chapter of Joshua 1 if you'll notice what God says to Joshua, and what an incredible, phenomenal promise that God makes to Joshua. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, go, over, go to the land which I have given to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses, from the wilderness 
and this Lebanon as far as to the great river, the river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and the great sea towards the going down of the sun shall be your territory. In other words, as far as the east is from the west, God told Joshua, this is going to be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be, be strong and good courage. For to this people you should divide as inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very. Like somebody say very. Very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. And obviously one of my favorite passages of scripture, the next verse, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written there in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. Have I not commanded you be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What an incredible passage of scripture. What, a, what an incredible history lesson. What an incredible place for Joshua to be very, uh, we would like to think of Joshua's laid back and, and cool, calm, and collected, but there was a season in Joshua's life when there was a coup that rose up against Moses. They wanted to vote him out. They wanted to vote somebody in, and uh, Moses gave them decision to, to actually vote and uh, cast their ballot, and it was Joshua that made the statement, choose you this day who you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So Joshua said, I'm not serving Moses. I'm not serving the, the sons of Quran. I'm, I'm serving the things of God. And where God is, that's where I want to be, and that's the decision I want to make. And I believe that, that Joshua was handpicked by Moses. I believe that he was raised by Moses, trained by Moses to do something that Moses could not do. Moses did not take the people into the promised land because of disobeying God earlier when he struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock. And, of course, striking the rock represents Calvary. And we see Moses dies in the wilderness. Joshua takes the people in the promised land. If you're familiar with the book Circle Maker, and that certainly has been one of the favorites of Pastor Rond and I, we, we learn that something happens when you circle things. The Bible says that God walks the circuit of the earth looking for a people to bless, looking for a people to prosper. Aren't you glad that you're in that circuit? Aren't you glad you're at the right place, the right time for whatever God wants to do, whatever God wants to say to promote you where he wants you to promote you? But this lesson that we learn as Joshua takes however many people into the promised land, God commands Joshua, here's the way I want you to take the city. I want you to get everybody and I think everybody means everybody, whether they had strollers or whether they had stretchers or whether they had wheelchairs. Everyone was a circle the city of Jericho seven times, six days in a row. On the seventh day, at the seventh time they circled, they were to shout out, the battle is the Lord's and Joshua's. For, for six days, they were not permitted to say a single word. And, of course, we uh, theorize that's because for 40 years, all they did was whine. All they did was complain. All they did was gripe. All they did was fuss. And I believe God was over it. I believe that God was up to here with all their murmuring, all their complaining, all, all of that. Matter of fact, that generation that came out of Egypt, of, of the generation that came out of Egypt, only three people saw the promised land. That entire generation died out. For certain of those two people would have been Joshua and Caleb. Forty years earlier, Caleb saw a mountain that had giants on it. 
and he said, give me this mountain 40 years ago. I was ready to take the mountain, but because of whiners and complainers, I have been disqualified. But today I feel better than I did 40 years ago. Give me my mountain. Pastor Todd, I hope that's encouraging to you that 40 years later he still felt like he could take, he could take the mountain. And the giants were still there. When he got to the mountain, the first thing he had to do was kill a bunch of giants. And we know that Joshua went to the promised land because he was leading the, the generation. We also know that Moses, 2,000 years later, made it to the promised land on the mountain with Jesus and Elijah. The promise that God made Moses, you will see the promised land. He got to see it firsthand with Jesus and Elijah. And that tells me that God never reneges on a promise. He never backs up on his word. If he spoke it, it will come to pass. If we have the patience and the perseverance to see it come to pass, like the deaf football player never gave up, kept pounding, kept pounding, and became what God wanted him to become because there was an inner voice on the inside of him that says, you were born to a higher or a greater purpose. When I talk about, when I, when I talk about growing up, I think about the writing of the Apostle Paul. And I don't know how, but I wrote down the wrong scripture. You're going to find out where he said this. But the Apostle Paul made a statement. When I was a child, I acted like a child. But when I became a man, I put off childish things and I began to operate as a man. And I, I want to bring to your attention a book by Rick Warren. It's called The Purpose Driven Life. The very first four or five words in the first chapter, the first line of that book makes this statement. It's not about you. But for all of our life, we've been taught it's about us. In the 16th century, an astronomer by the name of Nicholas, um, help me, uh, I tried to say that today, Pastor Ron, got it right. Copernicus, thank you. Say that fast three times, Pastor Todd. Copernicus, Copernicus, Copernicus. He made the observation that there's a possibility that the sun is not revolving around the earth, but that the earth is revolving around the sun. And it was, it, was, it was ingenious, and it changed the whole concept, the whole, the whole perception of what man had, that the sun's not circling around us, but we're circling around the, around the sun. And you know, that tells me God is a God of motion. Whether you want to go forward or do anything with your life, God said in order that right now, are you ready for this? Hang on to your chair. No, literally. Hang on to your chair, brace yourself, for you're traveling 60,000 miles an hour right now, at this very moment. Maybe that's why mom has dementia or that dizzy. Every once in a while she'll get dizzy and, and she makes sure and milks it all she can. I said, mom, it's, you're, you're dizzy because we're going 60,000 miles an hour. Who wouldn't be dizzy in that kind of environment? I mean, we are, we, are, we are getting on down the road. But Paul came to a place in life where, and maybe he was surrounded by baby Christians. He was the one that made the statement, God put meat, teeth in your mouth to eat meat. Milk's fine for a while, but you need to grow up and you need to, you need to go on with what God has for you. And I, I, I come from a generation where we really weren't allowed to make excuses for our failures or shortcomings, but we were given another chance to do it right. I don't know if you can relate to that kind of upbringing or whatever, but my dad never used the word defeat. He never used the word quit. My dad's attitude was, my dad watched me run. I ran varsity track two years, had a ride to UCLA. He came to my track meets, and I didn't win every, I didn't win every track. I mean, I was racing against black people, and they were fast. And I was always chasing them. I mean, I thought I was a black man trapped in a white man's body, but I'm a Creek Indian trapped in a white man's body. I've forgiven your people for what they've done to my people, and I'm, I'm okay with all that. But, I, you know, I, I wanted so bad. My dad was a very, very busy man, pastored a very 
healthy church in that denomination. It was the strongest church in that state for a long time. And I wanted, I wanted my dad to be proud of me. I wanted to do well every time that he came. And, I, and we, when we were headed back to the school or back to the house, you know, I would be kind of discouraged. And dad said, hey, you came in second. You placed. He said, but most important, you finished the race. Because I ran, I ran the hurdles, I ran the mile, I ran the mile relay. I was the last guy with the baton, and that's a terrible place to be, especially when your track team's not very good because you're way behind. Everybody thinks you're way behind because you, you're, you got the baton, but I got it way behind. Can anybody relate? So I had to try extra hard, at least catch the guy, and try to stay in the race. And here's what Dad said. You finished the race. I can remember competing where, where people would begin to race, and when they realized they were losing, they created a limp. Anybody see a, a, a runner stop and they, they pulled their hamstring or they, well, there was no way for me to pull a hamstring because how many remembers when Ben Gay used to hurt you? Do you remember? Do you remember? Okay, when I, was, when I was a sophomore and a junior in high school, I would take a big old wad of Ben Gay and I'd rub my thighs down and listen, my legs were so hot. That's why I ran a 431 mile in high school because my legs were on fire. I couldn't possibly pull a hamstring. I was in too much pain for the Ben Gay. I don't know why I shared that with you, but I just thought that would just encourage some of you. But, but Dad's attitude was, you finish the race. And the Apostle Paul makes a statement, it's not the one that runs the swiftest, it's not the one that shines the brightest, but it's the one that endureth to the end, he shall be saved. And thank God we're on a race, thank God we're running at a pace that God has given us. And if you're not running at the pace that God has given you, maybe it's time to think a little bit outside the box and pursue what you really believe that God wants for you. I've shared this story before, but we have some guests that haven't been around me for a while, so at least members give me the courtesy laugh like you always do when I tell a joke I've told 40 or 50 times. But there was a guy from Tennessee that visited a nightclub in Dallas, and he heard that the nightclub was looking for a bouncer. And so Steve, he went to the, the manager and he said, hey, I understand you're looking for a bouncer. I'd like to apply for the job. And the, the manager looked at this kid from Tennessee and said, well, let me tell you something. He said, we got some pretty heavy drinkers here, and we got some big old boys, and they're pretty rowdy. It's, it's going to take a real man to be a bouncer in this club. It's going to be someone tough. And the, and the kid said, tough? Let me tell you how tough I am. I was bush hogging the back 40 acres for dad, and I hit a stone, and I fell over, and my arm got caught in the, in the bush hog and cut my arm off. But I knew if I didn't finish the back 40, dad would be upset. So I took some duct tape, and I taped my arm back, and I finished the, the back 40. And the manager looked at him and goes, man, you are tough. You get the job. And the guy from Tennessee said, all right. Now, if you're listening by podcast, you just missed a great joke. I mean, even the blondes got the joke, everybody. But, 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 his, but his attitude was, no matter what the circumstances of the past are, I'm going to push forward, and I'm going to do what God wants me to do. Let me be very, very careful what I say, and I've spent quite a bit of, I've spent quite a bit of time with several that are acquainted with or associated with Alcoholics Anonymous and with Celebrate Recovery. I believe in both programs. I, I would like to revamp Alcoholics Anonymous because I believe it's detrimental for 30 years after you haven't had a drink, get in front of a microphone and say, my name is Hank and I'm alcoholic because obviously I'm not an alcoholic. I'm something else. God has changed me. God has transformed me. So that confession, I'd like, I would like to revamp that. Celebration Recovery is an incredible, phenomenal class. But you've got to come to a place in your life where you graduate from that teaching 
And then you go on to the next teaching. And I think sometimes it's comfortable to remain in the mistakes of yesterday, not, not, to, not to glorify them, but to realize that is a trophy in your life. I've been clean 35 years. That is an incredible trophy, and I'm proud of that. But when I gave my heart to Jesus Christ on that Sunday morning, I weighed 119 pounds. I was freebasing Coke. I was doing peyote. I was doing mushrooms. I was doing hash. I was, I was all messed up with, with wine coolers and everything else. And for several months, I had been hiding um, something about cocaine. Cocaine is not a drug you share. Cocaine is a very stingy drug because it's so expensive, and you don't, you don't share it like you share, share a joint or a number or a blunt or whatever you guys call them now. I'm not exactly sure about all that. So I was sequestered away in the living room of my home. I wasn't working. I had absolutely no health at all, Steve. I was, I was sick. I was sickly. And I remember that Sunday night when I gave my heart to God and went home and cleaned my house out. Well, my, my friends cleaned my house out for me. I took all my stuff because I told them I gave my heart to God. I want more drugs in my house. So they took me literally and took everything out of the house, everything out of the refrigerator, all my paraphernalia. And that next morning, I got up at 7 o'clock. I had sold my construction company to two framers, and they were framing a shopping center. And at 7 o'clock that morning, I showed up with a skill saw and a 50-foot cord, and I told the guy that I'd sold my company to, I want, I want to work today. He said, you can't work. You're a drug addict. I said, I went to church last night, gave my heart to God. I want to try it. He gave me a building to frame. And I worked all day long. You know what? I never drank another alcoholic beverage. I never put another drug in my mouth. I never smoked another cigarette. Something happened that Sunday night. I was, trans, I was gloriously transformed. And I believe God still does that. I believe deep calleth the deep. And I believe when you're associated, associated with people that can tell you that he's the God of deliverance and he's the God of victory, I believe you can shut that door, lock that door, and go forward to another door that God wants to open. The, the door of opportunity does not knock. That's kind of misnomer. You have got to knock on that door. You've got to push that door open. And you've got to get out there in the, where Star Trek, to boldly go where no man's gone before. Because God does not want you to be satisfied with the mundane. He does not want you to be satisfied with the ho-hum. Serving God is exciting. It's victorious. And if you're bored, if you're bored serving God, maybe you need to write a new chapter of your book. I mean, just a thought, just, just something I was just thinking about. When we, when, we, when we grow up from the cradle to the coffin, everything in life is about us. And we are, we are a generation that's been taught not to just enjoy the blessings of God, but to indulge in the blessings of God. If it's food, we overeat. If it's sex, we get all, we get all freaked out. It seems like everything in our life is all about celebrating us. It's all about us. It's all about whether, whether you're being spoon-fed as a baby or diaper-chained as, as a baby. When you walk through life, when you go to college, all the counseling, everything is set up for your enjoyment and for your pleasure. Whether it's a Cadillac or a Suburban or a Lexus, all those little, those little extras are there for your enjoyment. Whether it's Adidas or Nike, it's so that you can run higher, jump higher, be better. Everything that you see marketable right now on TV and in the store is all about you. Now, there are people that buy the best choice, but there's others that we can't do anything but name brand. That was a thought I put out there. I've learned that best choice half and half takes just, tastes just as well as what's the other brand, Knudsen's or Land O'Lakes. Yeah, and it's like, 
87 cents cheaper. So anyway, I don't know why I got off on that. But even when you go into the store, everything is there to, to, fo- to get your attention focused that you might be excited about something. And listen, if you're getting excited about a quart of half and half, you really need a life. You really need to plug into what my mom will say. I only spent a dollar. I love my mom. She's, my mom is a list maker. And she'll tell, tell me how many days it's been since I've called her. Or she'll tell me how much she paid for a can of corn. And then she will tell me, our electric bill was, was like, and I'll, I, always, I always flip it around and say, well, Mom, that was kind of high, wasn't it? And she'll save like $2 on it. I go, man, that, that was kind of high. And she looks at me like, I've got three heads. She goes, no, I did good. I, I, got, I got a deal there. But I just love doing, doing stuff like that with her. But, but everything, everything about life is all about us. It's, it, we're spoon-fed, we're blessed, we're blessed going in, blessed going out, and we've almost, we, we've almost made the gospel comfortable so that what should be radical is normal and what should be normal is subnormal. Did that help anybody? That makes sense just then. In other words, if we're saved, sanctified, and filled with heaven's sweet Holy Ghost, we feel like we're done. But David said, ask of me, and I will give you nations as inheritance. How many people are asking for nations? How many people are saying, I want to win? First of all, I just like to win my neighbor to the Lord. So he quit throwing his beer cans over my yard and coming in at three o'clock in the morning and running over my mailbox. Can anybody relate? Let's get our neighbors saved first. And then let's, then let's get the guy that pumps gas. Never mind, they don't pump gas anymore. But, but we go in to pay for your gas. Let's, get, let's let our life be such a light that when we walk in, they know that something has happened. Something has been charged. There's something about it that's so exciting and we're so full of life that people People look at us and wonder, what are you drinking? What are you smoking? What are you snorting? What are you? Oh, I, I, the only drugs I take is the gospel. Right. That's what the, and it's not, it's, not, it's not just good news. It's the best news. Right. When you see where God said, I will take all the bad stuff you did, and I'll give you all the good stuff that I have. What kind of trade is that? What's fair about that? How can you say I sacrifice something? Whatever you sacrifice, God always gives back seven, 30, 100 fold. So it's, it's, almost, it's almost tough to comprehend the love that God has for us. And God does stuff not for us, but in spite of us. Because God knows exactly when he puts you together. Just like that laptop that's got all of those, all those perks and all those, 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 those things you can go to. Facebook, all those things you can go to. Your, your, your smartphone, all those things you can go to. God wired you, knows exactly what you're capable of. And I think all of us, let me rephrase that. I think that many of us are operating in black and white instead of full color, in full color. I think God wants you to be chronicum. It's kind of quiet here, but I, I think there's more to us than we know. And I think it, we've come to a place in life where it might not hurt to find out what some of those things are all about. In the movie, We Bought a Zoo, Matt Damon, I love Matt Damon. I liked him better in Born, but We Bought a Zoo, kind of a, kind of a, a story, it's a true story about a, a British journalist where uh, he's lost his wife. He's got two children to raise. And they buy this zoo that's really, really struggling, really having a hard time, sows a phenomenal amount of money into it, but turns the zoo around and, and, and builds it back up and makes it incredible. One line in that movie can change your life. One line. And let me read that line to him. He made the statement when asked why he did what he did and when he got it to where it was and how great it was, they asked him how he did it, why he did it, what motivated him. Here's what he says. Sometimes all you need is 20 seconds of insane courage. Sometimes all you need is 20 seconds of insane courage. Maria, I jotted some things down. It didn't take Peter 20 seconds to get out of the boat. 
and walk on the water. It didn't take David 20 seconds to charge Goliath with that that slingshot. It didn't take Shadrach 20 seconds to say, you can do whatever you want to us, but we won't bow. We might burn, but we won't bow. We will not, we will not submit. It took 20 seconds for Daniel to say, I don't care what you do to me. I'm not going to stop praying. It didn't take Moses 20 seconds to throw his staff down and turn into a serpent to eat up all the other serpents. It didn't take Moses 20 seconds to say, I'll go if you send help. It didn't take Jesus 20 seconds to stop a funeral procession and raise the boy from the dead. How would you like that funeral to complete? Wouldn't that be a great way to, to change your funeral 20 seconds you raise the dead? It didn't take Mary 20 seconds to, to break her alabaster box. It didn't take Joseph 20 seconds to flee from Potiphar's wife. It didn't take Elisha 20 seconds to make the axe head to float. It didn't take Elijah a 67-word prayer. They'd been screaming all morning. They had cut themselves. They'd calling on their God. Then they said, okay, now, Elijah, you try. He prays a 67-word prayer that didn't take 20 seconds. All of a sudden, fire falls from heaven and consumes the sacrifice, consumes the water, consumes everything. It didn't take Joshua 20 seconds to say, choose you this day who you will serve. This make it a little bit more personal. It didn't take me 20 seconds to ask Pastor Rhonda out on the first date. It didn't take me 20 seconds to give her her first kiss. It didn't take me 20, although I went to a great deal and made it real nice. It didn't take me 20 seconds to ask for her hand in marriage. And I had a few others that I thought of sharing with you, but I thought maybe I better not. But just, 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 just. What's the, the old cliche? Was it, is it Nike that said, just do it? Just do it? Or, or, who who comes to the cliche that says, just go for it? Just go for it. I think Jesus came out with that. I, I think he's the one that said, get out of the boat, get on the water, walk in the water, turn the water to wine, be involved, get involved, be excited, and, and at least act like you're excited just, just, just to go with the flow. Some of you just need to just, I don't know, maybe drink some Listerine and swallow it. Maybe that would change your life for a moment and, and, and bright your Right, your day. In Joshua 3 and 5, if you go with me real quick. They're getting ready to cross the Jordan River. Jordan may, and Joshua makes a statement. Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. There's another translation, Pastor Rhonda probably has it, where it uses the word consecrate. How many, your Bible says consecrate. How many of you didn't turn to Joshua 3 and 5 because you, you knew I was going to quote it right? How many of you didn't bring your Bible because you knew that I was going to quote it right? How many just bring your Bible just because it's a hassle to keep up with? You always leave it in the church, you've got to come back Tuesday morning and get it. How many says, I'm not going to lift my hand, I don't care what you ask this morning. Where, where, where are you thinking? Consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow, the Lord will do amazing things among us. What a statement. What a challenge. Jesus told the rich young ruler, sell what you have. Give it to the poor. Then come back and follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. What kind of check would Bill Gates write out right now for the opportunity to chill with Jesus, to be there sitting at his feet when he taught the Beatitudes, to actually be there when he raised the dead? What would it be like to drink the the wine he created? I mean, they, in that generation, 
Rarely did they travel 30 miles beyond where they lived. Those disciples touched the ends of the earth. They, they, they went all over the world and spread the gospel. They did great, incredible, phenomenal things. The rich young ruler couldn't grasp that because his God was his money. And he couldn't let it go. He couldn't turn it loose. And here God has kind of given us the same nudge or the same encouragement. If you'll consecrate yourselves today, tomorrow, the Lord's going to do amazing things. And I did a little bit of time just to focus on what consecrate does not mean. Let me give you what it doesn't mean before I tell you what it means. Consecration is not going to church once or twice a week. It's not doing daily devotions. It's not being a part of the 21-day Daniel fast. It's not keeping the Ten Commandments. It's not sharing your faith with your friends. It's not giving God tithe and offering. It's not repeating the sinner's prayer. Consecration is not volunteering for a ministry or leading a small group or raising your hands in worship or going on a mission trip. Those are all good things. Look at somebody say, those are good things. Going to church once in a while is a good thing. Tithing is a good thing. Leading a small group is a good thing. Baking a chocolate cake for the, for the saints, those are good things. But that's not consecration. Consecration literally means setting yourself apart. It's dethroning yourself and making Christ your throne. Let me say that again. It's dethroning yourself. It's giving God veto power. I got very upset last night as I was watching the interview on Fox News about some very brash, ignorant statements that our president made to the nation. Just got, just got real frustrated and, and just, got, just got, kind of got in a place where what can one person do to change the course of what's happening, what's taking place? Obviously, we're headed for a one-world government. It's obviously that we're looking at a euro dollar it's obviously a lot of things are happening where we're going to be forced to pay for abortion. I mean, a lot of things are happening right now that we probably do not have the power to change because he has the veto power that whatever one house suggests or, the, or what the nation suggests, he can veto it and go above the people's head. And I was just, just, just saying, what in the world can we do? Then I read an article by Joseph Gon Cain. Wrote the Harbinger. How many of you have not read the Harbinger? Okay, you stand up right now. Go get in your car. Go to the Bible bookstore and buy it and read it and come back next Sunday. No, just kidding. But this is a, this is a, a, a Jewish rabbi that, that addresses the... He had the opportunity to, to address the president of the United States. Wasn't asked to pray, but he was asked to bless. And he shares some incredible truths about if you put your left hand on the Bible declaring in God we trust, and then with your right hand you go completely against the gospel, what, what does that get us? But the bottom line was the one thing that we can do to make a difference, to change the, the tide, to, to see some things right. Anybody? Pray. Pray. See, I, I think that sometimes our prayer life has got to change the degree where we need to expect God to make it happen but we need to act like it's up to us to bring it to pass. Let me say that again. We need to have the attitude that God has the ability to make it happen, but we have the ability to bring it to pass. Daniel had a vision. His vision related to today. 
3,000 years later, a prophetic dream about the second coming, about the rapture, about the four horsemen, about the apocalypse. He had a dream, time, times and half a time, three and a half years of the tribulation. It was a prophecy concerning this generation. And Daniel knew it was important. Daniel knew that he saw something that was mind-blowing, life-changing. He, he knew it. When, when, he, when he saw the vision, he asked God, what does this vision mean? Give me the interpretation to this vision. And for 21 days, he fasted. For 21 days, he prayed. And on the 21st day, Gabriel, the, 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 the revelator, shows up and says, Daniel, God heard your prayer 21 days ago and gave me the answer. But I have been battling the prince of Persia, who we know to be Lucifer. We know that his kingdom is over Iraq and Iran. So I, I've been battling the prince of Persia. So I went back and got Michael. I guess Michael knows black belt karate. Or I, I, I see Michael as the... Um, Oh, help me. Who's the guy, the uh, karate guy, the real deal? No, the, the other real deal. Who? No, the other real deal. No, the, the hair. Steven, Steven Seagal. I think Gabriel went and got Steven Seagal, and Steven Seagal put a whooping on Lucifer so that Gabriel could come and share the translation. Daniel knew that God was going to make it happen, but Daniel acted like it was up to him to bring it to pass. Now, would your prayer life change if you actually thought your answer depended on how serious or how intent you ask God for it and how consistent or persistent? And am I helping anybody in the, in the building at all? Something about consecration, not just dethroning yourself and giving God veto power, but surrendering all of you for all of him. Every second of time, Every ounce of energy, every penny of money is a gift from God for God. It's to do and accomplish what God has called us to do and accomplish in this nation. And if you don't have any big dreams, big aspirations, big visions, then stay with the basics. I was hungry, you fed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. Stay with the basics. Stay with the ones that you know in, in Matthew 28. When you stand before God, he's going to say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I mean, how hard can it be to bring a box of Captain Crow? <coughs> how, how hard can that can be? It's not hard. It's just out of the way. It's out of the norm. It's not something that we have been prepared and, and planned to do. When I was very, very young, and I, I fuss at myself for this, and Courtney has done real well, but... When, when every time I went to church, I had an offering. And I kind of dropped the ball with Christine. I just, I've just not encouraged her. I've not, I've not reminded her. And I probably, should, I probably should do more than that. But, but, but when you know that what you do makes a difference and it's not making a difference, maybe to change what you're doing. Maybe you need to remove some wrong voices from your life. Maybe spending a whole lot of time doing something you shouldn't be doing. I don't know. I, I'm not, I, I mean, maybe you know all the statistics about the Seahawks and all the about the Broncos and how the Seahawks beat the 49ers. And, and when that happened, I just gave up anyway. I, just, I, I, I was a 49er fan. Anyway, it's a gift from God for God. Consecration. Are you ready for this? Three things. It's an ever-deepening love for Jesus. It's a childlike trust in the Heavenly Father. And it's a blind obedience to the Holy Spirit. Love for Jesus. Trust in the Father, obedience to the Holy Spirit. We used to sing a song that says, All that I have, all that I am, all I ever shall be, cannot repay the love debt I owe, I surrender to thee. We used to sing the song, 
Oh, to be his hand extended, reaching out to the oppressed. Let me touch him. Let me touch Jesus so that others may be blessed. Because it, nine times out of ten, when you're touched by God, you immediately want to turn around and bless somebody else. Do you ever notice that? Do you ever notice that when you're blessed, I mean, generosity just comes to you, you immediately want to bless somebody else. And I think that's where the blessing is, is giving, is giving away, taking what God gives you, giving away, so there's room for God to give you more. Now, let me tell you something. If the trunk of your car is like Pastor Rhonda's, there's no room for blessing. None. None. Matter of fact, you got to put your muscle into it when you shut the door to kind of compact cram. When, when Jesus had good measure, pressed down, shaking together, running over, he was talking about Pastor Rhonda's trunk. That's, that's, that's your trunk. A lot of times, I believe, we need to give stuff away so that we've got room to receive other stuff. Isn't that what a river does? A river transfers to A to B so it can get it from B to C. So, so the more that flows through, the more that God adds, the more you're blessed with. And then later, later on life, you look back and say, you know what? My life really made a difference to somebody. If you've never been damned by society, if you've never been on probation, if you've never had to pay back child support, if you've never had to pay court fines, you don't know what it's like to be in that hole. It seemed like society is against you. That if you don't pay this probation, then there's another court cost, there's another court fee, there's another probation. And it's like it goes round and round and round. And I think a lot of us, not even realizing it, are kind of lost in the humdrum of life. We get up and do the same thing every day. We pretty much have the same diet all week. We're going to watch the same stuff on TV. We listen to the same thing on the radio. Most of us go to work exactly the same way every day. I don't because I've learned where the police are looking to see whether I have my seatbelt or not. I have good news, though. I am actually moving the seatbelt over on my left shoulder, so at least it looks like I have my seatbelt on. I think, I think sometimes it's just important to just... Well, let me share the truth that Pastor Ron and I have lived for 29 years. And there are three. We learned a long time ago, all we have belongs to God. But all God has belongs to us. What a trade. The second thing that we have learned is that God blesses us so that we can bless others. You remember the rich man and Lazarus? Every day the rich man walked past his gate. Every day he saw Lazarus laying there. He saw the dogs licking the sores. Every day. And when the rich man asked Father Abraham, can you send Lazarus back? Father Abraham said, every day you had opportunity to make a difference in his life, yet you did not. I think sometimes we get so caught up in just, just where we're at, where we're doing, feel like we're dead and feel like that nothing is happening. Maybe we need to do something different. Maybe you need to put the lime in the coconut and drink it all up. I don't know. But maybe there's change something. Part your hair on the other side. That's a chore. That's, well, some of you don't, can't do that. I feel sorry for you. Sit in a different place in church. Wear a different color. I, do, do, do something different. Greet people differently. One of my mentors, she went to be with the Lord, but if you were to ask her, how she would, ask her anything, how she was doing, she would always say, how you doing? She would say, normal. Sandy Bishop, how you doing? Normal. 
Some of you some of you just need to get different catchwords. Some of you just need to, I don't know, put your belt on backwards, put your watch on upside down. Do something different. Let, let the world know, hello, I'm here, I'm alive, I was created to be a difference, and now I need to learn how to get on that path to be a difference. I got this for, for Chris because I know he's a big history buff. Joshua Chamberlain was a student, theology. He was a professor of rhetoric, but when the nation in the Civil War went to war, he volunteered. And through the process of the war, he became a colonel in the 20th Maine Volunteer Infantry for the Union. On July 2nd, he found himself over 300 men. July 2nd, 1863. Does anyone remember the date? Gettysburg. It was the battle that determined the war. It, the word had already gone out. Whoever captured the high ground was going to win the war. And Joshua Chamberlain, the colonel, found himself with 300 men. And Steve, there were two infantries, the, the 12th and the 17th Confederate Industries charged him not once, not twice, but five times. On the fifth charge, he went from 300 men to 80, was wounded in battle. There was a, they had a, a young man sitting up in a tree watching the Confederate, and the young man told the colonel, they're regrouping to charge again. They had one round of ammunition, one bullet. The smart thing would have been to have surrendered. But sometimes God doesn't want us doing the smart things. Sometimes God just... God had just put a nudge in us, and this crazy colonel drew his sword and said, charge, one bullet. They put bayonets on their rifles, and the, 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 the element of surprise was so phenomenal that 80 men in less than five minutes captured 4,000 Confederate soldiers. 80 men a wounded leader, one bullet, a bayonet. And history buffs have determined, have, have determined through, through the course of time that that battle of Gettysburg is what brought the Union to victory and where we are today. Later, he was given the Medal of Honor. He went on to be the governor of Maine. And they asked him why he did what he did. He said, because I had the inability to do nothing. I had the inability to do nothing. I know some of you can relate. This congregation is mostly made up of people that if we were in the mall and somebody pulled out a gun and started shooting, most of us would shut the gunman down, whatever it took. I think that those, I think that, that that anointing, that favor, that blessing that's on the inside of us, we haven't had an opportunity to, to subdue a government. We haven't had an opportunity to end a war. We haven't had an opportunity to do what God has called us to do. So we really don't, we don't, really, don't really know a lot about what God has for us because we've never had opportunity. And maybe this is the season that God wants you to realize how important it is for you to know that you have the end of, you can't just sit back. 
The Bible says that righteousness prevails when, when, when good men prevail. Iniquity prevails when good men do nothing. A little poem. For one of a nail. Anybody heard this before? Wow. Should have built it up a little bigger. <laughs> Today while I was praying at 3 a.m., the Lord gave me this poem for this congregation just for this moment. I hope you enjoy it. For one of a nail, the shoe was lost. For one of a shoe, the horse was lost. For one of a horse, the rider was lost. For one of a rider, the message was lost. For one of a message, the battle was lost. For one of a battle, the kingdom was lost. And all for the want of a nail. Don't have any clue the momentum that God is building up. And you just might be that last little nudge, that last little push to get that momentum to a place that it works for your favor and for the kingdom of God. I will leave you with three things, and they're very brief. The first thing I want to leave you with as we grow up, as we hang around people that are grown up, as we surround ourselves with the plethora of, 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 of libraries, C- CDs, tapes, books, Three things I want to leave you with. Number one, determine in your heart to be a party giver. When Elisha accepted the call of God, he called the village together, killed all the oxen, that a bonfire from hell, he fed everybody in the village. He threw a party. Secondly, learn how to be a party crasher. The young lady with the alabaster box Crash that party. Change that environment. Change that whole setting. They got so excited about all the miracles. They were celebrating the resurrection of Lazarus. That's why the rich man gave the feast. They got so excited about the miracles, they forgot to honor the Christ. They didn't wash his feet. They didn't care for him. They didn't anoint him. But she, in that moment, didn't take her 20 seconds to break the box and wash her feet, his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair and anoint him. Didn't take her 20 seconds to do that, but she crashed that party. And here we are, David, 2,000 years later, still talking about her. What a party. The third thing. I already gave you the third thing. Oh, why didn't I? Yeah, I, I have two party givers. I don't, I don't like that. Let me, let me do a little. Let me, be a party giver, Elisha. Oh, be a party provider. Okay? When the prodigal son came home, what did the dad do? Threw a party. Every time you lead someone to the Lord, there's a party going on in heaven. Jesus said, all of heaven rejoices over one sinner that repents. Now, where would you rather give a party? To the village or heaven? What happens when heaven starts celebrating your efforts, your intentions? What happens when heaven starts acknowledging you and blessing you for what you're doing here on earth? The prodigal son came home. I had some other stuff here. I don't think I'll, I'll share that. What time is it? We oh, have three minutes. I'll talk real fast. Incredible book. Wrote a circle maker, wrote in the pit with a lion on a snowy day. My little, my little cousin is in uh, 
Phoenix being raised up to take over a very large vineyard church. I shared this book with him, and he called me last night. We probably talked about 45 minutes about this book. I want to read this. I want to read and put it in the words that he shared because God gave it to him, not me. Chapter 3 is called Draw the Line. Luke 9 and 23, take up your cross daily and follow me. You know what I realized the past couple days ago? Jesus hung on his cross, but he's not asking us to die for him. He's asking us to live for him. And the the cross attached to us simply tells the world who we are and what we link. Very clear message. The glory of the cross is what it's all about. In 44 AD, King Herod ordered that James the Greater be thrust through the sword. This is the only execution referred to in the New Testament about the disciples. He was the first of the apostles to be martyred, and so the bloodbath began. Luke was hung by the neck from an olive tree increase. Unlike the Super Bowl, these are some of my heroes that never got a ring, never got a trophy. They never really had their name in a marquee or no songs were ever written about them. But they were bad to the bone. Doubting Thomas was pierced with a pine spear, tortured with red-hot plates, and burned alive in India. In 54 AD, the the proconsul of Harapolis had Philip tortured and crucified because his wife converted to Christianity while listening to Philip preach. Wife got saved, so he got assassinated. Philip continued to preach while on the cross. Matthew was stabbed in the back in Ethiopia. Bartholomew was flogged to death in Armenia. James the Just was thrown off the southeast pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. After surviving the 100-foot fall, he was clubbed to death by a mob. Simon the Zealot was crucified by a governor of Syria in A.D. 74. Judas Thaddeus was beaten to death with sticks in Mesopotamia. Matthias, who replaced Judas Iscariot, was stoned to death and then beheaded. Peter was crucified with his wife upside down at his own request. John the Beloved is the only disciple to die of natural causes. That's only because he survived his own execution. When a cauldron of boiling oil could not kill him, Emperor Diocletian exiled him to the Isle of Patmos where he lived until his death in A.D. 95. Of course, I have another reason why I think John John the Beloved lived longer because he was taking care of the mother of Jesus. Let me conclude with this paragraph. Every Christian living in a first world country in the 21st century should read Fox's Book of Martyrs. It's a reality check that puts our first world problems in perspective. It redefines risk and sets the standard for sacrifice. By comparison, many of our risks seem rather tame, and many of our sacrifices seem somewhat lame. This is Fox's Book of Martyrs. 495 pages. From AD 33 to 2005, the last person murdered was in Cuba. The first person martyred that we know of was Stephen, stoned to death while Saul of Tarsus held the coats. They got out of the box. They lived their life to its fullest. They did all that God called them to do. Some went even beyond what seemed to be natural into the supernatural. Several weeks ago, I began this series on success in life by telling you a story of A.W. Mine, M-I-L-N-E. A hundred years ago, there was a group of missionaries raised up out of prosperity, or obscurity, rather. And uh, when they were called to a country, they took all their belongings 
and packed it into a coffin. Set sail, knowing they were never coming back. They said goodbye to all their loved ones, knowing that they would die on the mission field. They packed all their belongings in a coffin. A.W. Mim went to one of the uh, off, offshore headhunting islands. They had assassinated every missionary that had gone to this island, but he'd already died in Christ. He was already dead. He already gave himself up to be slaughtered. Ironically, he spent 45 years in this, in this village, and when he died, they put him in his coffin, buried him in the middle of the city, of the village, and wrote these words. When he came, there was no light. When he died, there was no darkness. Oh, that could be our testimony. Oh, that I could affect 410 Ash Drive and 420 Ash Drive and 430 Ash Drive. Oh, that we could touch this city as never before, that we could touch the state of Tennessee, that we could touch our nation, that we could be involved in ministries that change the world. Ask of me, and I will give you nations as inheritance. Had a tough time sharing this this morning because as I reflect, I realize there's a lot of things in my life that are kind of out of order. As most of you know, the past two years, we have been going through a storm from hell. That storm is coming to closure. And Pastor Ron and I will be vindicated on international television on the Daystar program, not just the Joni show, but the live hour. We've been asked to share our testimony. It's been a tough journey. Been a, a, a journey of obscurity. It's been a journey of just, just all-out trust. But you know what? Never would I, A through B, a through D, never would this be one of my multiple choices. I never would have chose the journey that we've been on. But I am determined to take the journey that we've been on and the lessons that I've learned. And I'm determined to touch the pastors and evangelists of this nation to encourage them, to instruct them, to help them, to prepare them. So as, as I'm going to attempt to live out what I shared with you today, it is our desire to live for him. If you could see where Jesus brought me from to where I am today, then you would know the reason why I love him so. You can take this world. It's wealth, it's riches. I don't need earth's fame. It's my desire to live for him. Can we give the Lord a hand clap of praise for his goodness, his mercy, his favor?